Welcome to the LNT Chat Show. And today my guest is David Roberts. And uh, David's going to talk to us about multimedia learning. Uh, David, would you like to introduce yourself a little bit first? Uh, yeah. Hi, everyone. My name is David Roberts. I'm uh, a senior lecturer and a senior fellow of the Higher Education Academy. I'm working towards my retirement now uh, at Loughborough University. I have uh, worked at the University of Ulster for some 13 years. I've worked at the School of Oriental and African Study, King's College. My background uh, is in post-conflict and post-colonial studies. Uh, PhD area was Cambodia and the peacekeeping operations. So I think really those kind of backgrounds, if you like, influenced the way that I thought about learning and teaching uh, and took me towards uh, more conceptual approaches and understandings that were uh, akin to the work of Freire and others, rather than being concerned with technical applications as and, and such much. And and I, I sort of I said it was multimedia learning, but you did uh, describe it using a few other terms. Can can you sort of elaborate on that? Give people a, a greater sense of exactly what it is we're talking about. Yeah, sure. The the sort of intellectual background for it is referred to as multimedia learning literature. Uh, that in itself uh, is based in cognitive psychology theory of learning. But really, I would just think of it as a more rounded, uh, comprehensive and engaging way of thinking about the learning and teaching process as it relates to how students' brains are made universally, whether they come from culture X or culture Y, whether they're male or female, whether they're abled or disabled, whichever identity they are, everybody on earth shares the same cognitive architecture of being able to learn uh, through the use of words and learn through the use of imagery. And is this something that um, kind of you've developed over time or was this spurred on by, you know, someone you heard speaking or you observed teaching? Uh, no, it wasn't inspired by someone else that way. It was inspired by my own sense of failure, I think. <laughs> um, uh, I, I I'd heard colleagues uh, talking about when they're doing uh, presentations at conferences, you know, the, the, the standard method. Uh, and they, they realised that they were boring themselves, so wondered what they were doing to their audiences. Then I realised when I was teaching, I, I feel like I'm boring myself using very conventional um, means. So what effect was that having on students? And I was struggling, and I was not struggling, I was looking around um, sort of partly consciously for ways that might engage audiences better. So this was the late, mid to late 1990s. And it coincided with the rise of the digital era and a transformation in advertising from heavily text-based to uh, gigantically visually based. And I came across some Greenpeace-style um, advertising that in one picture and with just a short line of words managed to convey something hugely complicated that people that, that, that looking at it, you just got it straight away. And I thought, hmm. If I got a complicated message like that, yes, I've got a background in education and I'm, you know, I've got a few smarts, but who else might that be applicable to? So I started taking that that idea into the uh, into the teaching spaces, whether they were uh, seminars, tutorials, or lectures or whatever, to see how it was coming across to students. That's where it's, that's where it started. Okay, and and how did that manifest itself um, initially? Then what what kinds of things were you doing? 
Um, I was trawling the nascent internet for images that could communicate the meaning of the subject areas I was addressing. And I think to some extent it was it was much easier because the area that I was teaching in was international relations and politics. Mm -hmm. uh, lots of stuff in the news and so on and so forth. So I started trawling the web for such material and started to come across it in, in such prodigious quantities that I could barely not use uh, such such materials. And it was easy to learn uh, how you got a picture into PowerPoint without looking like an amateur because uh, there were tutorials online increasingly. So it was a case of capturing those, capturing those images, integrating them, and then working out how best to use them in a given teaching and learning space. So in a lecture, it would be through the projector. Uh, in a tutorial, it would be looking at images uh, in a given book or uh, magazine or whatever it might be. Um, but it was also exercises in getting to think, getting students to think about what a concept might look like if they tried to visualize it. So they were engaging in it as well, and they'd had the same amount of training as I had, which was nothing. So we were all starting from the same position. And it was a condition or a process that seemed to work for everybody that was engaged with it. Uh, although there were some very early indications that I didn't follow through, that dyslexic students were making more, taking more of an interest in this than uh, neurotypical students were. Well, you know, we, we come to that later. Oh, OK, and are there sort of some um, favourite examples or things that you think have worked uh, particularly well or you, you found have worked particularly well in classes? Yeah, there are. Uh, there's some great examples. Um, unfortunately, with it being an audio podcast, I can't really show them. <laughs> but what I'm going to do is I'm going to send some uh, exemplar slides. I'm going to add a link to them or send you the file. You can embed it. Um, there is one, I think, that, that that grabbed me straight away. And it, if you can imagine um, what looks like uh, a tropical rainforest from above, mm -hmm. and what it's shaped like is a pair of lungs, human lungs, yes. and eaten away at the bottom of the bottom right hand side, you can see the ground beneath the trees. And it's all gouged out and everything. And that was the environment environmental message about um, what happens when you deforest, when you start, you know, logging the Amazon? What you're doing is you're taking away from the human capacity to breathe. You're wrecking the oxygen supply, CO2, all the rest of the stuff that we that we know well now. And that image conveys that complexity in one go, in one gulp, in one bite, as it were, without you having to get into the science of it. You can do that in addition. And that's what I do with images when I'm showing them. I don't describe the image. I talk about what the image is meant to mean and what it, I'm using it to convey so that we're not getting mixed messages. We're not getting the message a student might interpret compared with one that um, I'm saying uh, without one that I mean it to be, I'm making sure that I talk them through the meaning of the image. So you deconstruct the image and you do that in just the same way that everybody does when they look at an image. You look at the component parts, you assemble it in your brain and you come out with an interpretation or a meaning. And um, there is uh, an artist, uh, a very well known artist called John Ingledew, who calls it brain jacking. 
you can't because your brain is an interrogative system because it is a problem solving entity when it looks at something that it can't immediately make sense of the brain automatically engages with oh what does that mean and it's an evolutionary thing it's how we've survived this long if we weren't looking at the world around us trying to make sense of oh what's that thing moving across my left hand field of vision oh it's just a spider oh it's a tiger oh it's and you make sense of your environment the brain is organized to do that 50 percent, according to mit 50 percent of the brain is used for visual processing i mean that's gigantic so what it means to me is that if you're not using visuals, you're wasting 50% of the brain's capacity to process information. And words, they're just a recent construct. Long before words, we learn visually from the outset. Babies learn visually from the outset. Its origin point is interpretation through looking at a scene, an image that presents itself to you. So that your brain then interprets it. And that's what happens when we're looking at these images. We are interpreting, we're deconstructing, we're looking for meaning. And the brain grabs onto it. The image brain jacks you. Unless you're not interested in looking at what the meaning is, of course. Yeah. And that's uh, the one that you described. That's obviously quite a, a metaphorical image. Mm. Do you think they're primarily metaphorical or does it work with a range of different types of image? Well, I would break them into sort of three areas. One is literal, or one is metaphorical, and one is the one combines. It's a hybrid kind of a thing because many images are both literal and metaphorical. Or a metaphorical image will contain literal content. So the literal content in the one I described with the trees, well, there's trees, a literal representation of trees. But you combine multiple literal elements, the grass, the ground, and so on, and you get a metaphor appearing. And the brain then works to interpret the meaning of the metaphor and where the brain might be struggling for a student, then that's what my role has been to talk through the meaning of it. So you get the meaning from the component, the literal components. They create together a metaphorical meaning, which is discussed with the uh, students throughout the course of, the, of how long the image is presented to them. And that connects to what you're actually wanting them to learn, to, i.e. to their uh, learning outcomes. And is this a case of sort of looking for uh, for images that will support the particular point that you're trying to make? Or is some of this sort of more organic? Because you, you kind of mentioned at the beginning that you came across an image and thought that's really interesting. And I'm, I'm just wondering whether the process, because I use quite a, um, a lot of images in my own teaching. Um, and part of that was based on a presentation that was done many years ago by a gentleman called Brian Wheeler. Um, from Birmingham University, who was describing the tourism life cycle um, by using, I think it was 10 or 11 pictures of Elvis, because what he did was drew an analogy between Elvis and the tourism life cycle. And of course, that meant you had something interesting to look at. But as you say, your brain was trying to work out why am I seeing pictures of Elvis when you're talking about the tourism life cycle? And actually making that connection uh made the understanding of what was being said a, a lot stronger is, is that your experience that's exactly, that's exactly it. it the process um is better known or more widely known as active learning that's what we're talking about here yeah. problem-based learning active learning the two uh, overlap and have differences as well but that's what is actually happening the key the lesson numero uno if you like the most important thing is that the image must be opposite 
If there's one rule to follow, that's what it is. If the image is up is not opposite, it has the opposite effect. Because your brain's struggling to, to, to find the meaning in image in an image that isn't connected to what you're actually saying and what you want it to convey. So if I'm talking about fish and I've got a picture of a shoe up, it will distract from what we're trying to get the students to learn or to understand or to engage with. So apposite imagery stimulates active learning, problem-based learning, and that is the centre of, or it's one of the key elements of the idea of multimedia learning. The other big connection, of course, is that it increases engagement. And did you find that the, the, the students sort of uh, responded very positively? Did, did, did they sort of make any comparison with the other forms of learning? Yes, they have from the outset. Um, I did a TEDx talk um, at a university and there were students coming down afterwards saying, you know, we wish lecturers would teach like this. And then there was, and we can come to this, there was a dyslexic learner who had been in the TEDx and she said I can remember everything you said because I hang them off the pictures and now wow. I have a hook um, onto which I can um, I can uh, recall and so you know, I started some research on the effect on dyslexic learners um, after that but in terms of then how did the students benefit or did they benefit uh, were they saying stuff yes absolutely so it came back in uh, module feedback for example that um, the commentary often centred around the use of multimedia and again many references to we don't understand why everyone isn't doing this because it's the most obvious thing to be doing because it's using our visual processing, it's using our eyes, it's, it's taking advantage of part of our brains that aren't being used, it's increasing our engagement. Um, attendance was um, normally amongst the best uh, of the year or sometimes even uh, across a given degree. Um, as I say, the, yeah, the feedback was very, very positive. There was always one or two who felt that they wanted more text. And of course, you can provide that. You just put it in the notes view. Yeah. There's no there's no problem with ensuring that students have access to as much text as they, you know, as, as they can get their hands on. Um, so, yes, lots of um, positive, constructive, helpful feedback that encouraged me to take the method into the testing, the research and testing stage. And has has much changed over time or, you know, presumably you've you've got a much bigger library now of resources, but has has anything changed in in the way that you approach it or the particular types of images that you use or how you use them in the classroom? Yeah, I mean, the, several things have changed. I think one is risk aversion in higher education um that bureaucrats and managers have seen images and thought oh that might upset a student and well first of all you use your discretion anyway yes they're just you know there's disturbing pictures out there and mostly you don't need to use them uh, but second they're going to see far worse on netflix and amazon prime i don't know why a university would be concerned about that other than this ghastly you know attempt to maintain their an impression of reputation or that sort of stuff that they and I suppose most important, they can't stand the idea of being sued by an opportunist person or a person who's genuinely upset. But that all ties into the idea that, you know, resilience has changed as well. And there is not a hardiness any longer to um, much of 
uh, human life. It doesn't I'm not talking about generations. I'm talking about attitudes that people are evolving. So you should always be cautious with any slightly contentious picture. And you can give warnings in advance. And even before students take or sign on to the module, there are disclaimers saying you will see images that may upset some people. Mm. That's definitely changed. When I started, you could I didn't have to worry about that sort of thing. I haven't changed any of the images that I've used. There are you know, some which are graphic, some which are um, you know, unmistakably challenging for some people. Um, but. I've seen no reason to not use an image that is very effective in conveying a learning outcome. There are no regulations as yet. There will be. This will be regulated and controlled like everything else is in higher education. And the more people start to use imagery that may be contentious, if you're teaching history or politics and so on, and you're showing pictures of things in Ukraine or immigrants trying to escape from Ukraine or um, black Ukrainians being turned back at customs points and white Ukrainians being allowed to move through the customs point, then yes, it's going to cause um, degrees of concern and they should be there. That concern should be there. And it makes it, for my view, a much more effective teaching medium. And if you can raise those interests, increase that engagement, then I think that that's a very good thing. OK, um, I, I, I totally uh, uh, understand what you're saying about, you know, changes in resilience and the need to factor in uh, protection, shall we say. I, I'm, in the past, I've used... Um, there's a couple of, of things which are expressed either from within film or uh, comedy, and I'll mm. have to preface it with um, a notification. Uh, you know, basically it's a parental advisory type thing, and invited people uh, if they if they believe that they might be offended to step outside and said, you know, I'll happily do a one to one with you to cover whatever material might might have been there. Um, and funnily enough, that always seems to spur people actually want to be there um, because as you say their experience online is one whereby they have access to you know lots of things that well, we perhaps maybe in different circumstances would wish that they didn't but that's the, the nature of the world we live in um, if someone is interested then in trying to uh, present material a little bit more visually are there any sort of tips or any advice that you would uh, give to someone who's maybe um, taking a more traditional approach when it comes to presentation uh, yeah, the first thing, uh, the first thing I think I would suggest is not if you feel overwhelmed, um, that's quite normal. Uh, the thought of having to transform a hegemonic pedagogy, i.e., one dominated by text, that mirrors our careers, publishing, research. Um, yes, it, it will feel a little bit overwhelming. Um, to some people, in fact, you know, to more than some. In my experience, people that have decided to, you know, progress it have realized there isn't anywhere near as much to worry about, that there's hundreds of millions of millions of images, which makes finding even just one or two very, very easy and very, very quick indeed. Many people express concerns about copyright. If you're not selling them, and if you're not misrepresenting them, i.e. claiming that you've made the image, it falls under the fair use legislation in the UK. You don't have to worry about that. If you're just showing them in a teaching context, it's considered fair use. Um, 
just start with one or two at a time. You don't have to build a lecture at the slide deck that's full of high quality images. And remember to use high quality. I, I never use anything that's less than 800 by 600 pixels um, because it can it can look a bit amateurish and then that might put some viewers off or it may generate it may not make the meaning clear as it were um start off that way ask students how they how they're reacting to it whether they think it's meritable whether they think it's something that they would like to see more of build your own slide decks build your own image collection uh, and just start playing with it there's no there's no requirement that you dive into it head first and make everything 100% visual that's how i do it but i do it but i've been doing it for 20 years okay uh, that's excellent um uh, i mean it certainly reflects my personal experience both as a learner um i mentioned earlier before we started the actual podcast that i've done quite a lot of stage work and in fact uh, found uh, trying to learn lines by rote was almost impossible, but using a, a visual memory technique for me personally um, worked much, much better and it was much more um, efficient and effective. Um, and certainly uh, from the sort of delivery standpoint, I'd much rather show someone a picture of something and then talk about it, not least because um, you can get a lot of uh, individual responses to it as well. Um, and then it's quite interesting to compare why one person responds to it one way um, and someone else responds to it in a in a different way. And, and you know, as you've already alluded to, I think there's nothing more disheartening than watching students sort of hearts sink as they walk into a room um, and they're faced with uh, death by PowerPoint and you know lots and lots of text. It's possibly going to end up being read. That's what we face when we go to conferences as well, yeah, quite, quite normally. And that I think that's why it's so common in lectures, because it's so common in academia, in hegemonic academia, certainly. Yeah. The hanging the memories or the recollection of images was important for the dyslexic learners as well. Um, for dyslexic learners, the improvements are greater than neuro than for neurotypical students. So when we did the randomized controlled trial testing, student engagement and active learning increased by between 60 and 90% when images were used. When dyslexic students did a similar randomized control test, their increases were between 80 and 100%. So they seemed to benefit from it. Um, more than neurotypical uh, counterparts uh, so the, it benefits it benefits all sectors which makes it an inclusive pedagogy okay i have that's been really interesting uh and uh, i think you said hopefully there will be some uh links in the description uh below the uh, episode title um so people can go and uh, look up um, some more information if they're interested. Uh, so, David, thank you very much for that presentation today. Um, absolutely fantastic, and and I wish you uh, uh, well, peace and peace and joy in your in your retirement. Thank you very much, Roger. It was lovely being on. Thanks for having me. Bye bye for now.